Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, and welcome back to this little series looking at the Trent Affair in late 1861 and designed to get you in the mood for Britain Goes to War, which is launching in spring 2022. Last time we set the scene, we concluded that the British could not back down. The French were surprisingly supportive, and the Americans were in a bit of a quandary. Today we keep our focus on the legal aspect of this crisis, with some discussion also about national honour and why it was such a big deal, but I promise this discussion will be anything but boring. A reminder, you can listen to all five of these episodes without ads and without waiting, since patrons have access to them right now, and another chunky episode with all five of these episodes combined. If you sign up at the $5 level, you'll also be prepared for Britain Goes to War when it's released. You'll also be able to access the 40 plus hours of content already exclusively available for patrons. That's the extent of my pitch, guys, but whatever you choose, you're very welcome today. I hope you're seated comfortably and you're ready to delve into this seriously juicy history. Without any further ado then, let's get into it, as I take you back to December 1861. Was the seizure of the Confederate commissioners legal? That was the question that confronted British legal officials, and they were set the task of coming to a consensus on where, precisely, international law had been violated. Establishing a legal basis, or in Britain's case, seeking the legal high ground, were important steps in the settlement of a dispute, particularly following the Napoleonic Wars. Alongside international law came other concepts like arbitration, but these weighty concepts may have been more important to British and American legal officials than they were to the public of each nation. To most Britons, unfamiliar and uneducated when it came to legal norms, the most unforgiving aspect of the Trent incident was that Britain's guests had been seized while under the cover of her flag. According to the demands of national honour, an insult to the flag demanded redress. The flag was the symbol of the nation. It was the visual representation of British glory, unity, strength and prestige. The flag promised safety to all who travelled underneath it. Any violation of this sanctity was also a violation of Britain's national promise. In the case of the Trent, that neutral British vessel had been carrying Confederate commissioners and, rightly or wrongly, international law by this point in history did not consider persons to be contraband of war. The United States, the British could claim, 
had not merely dishonoured the flag and delivered a stiff insult to the nation's honour, the Yankees had also violated international law. If it was not made clear to the world that this behaviour was unacceptable, other powers might not believe in the protective power of the British flag anymore. They might even try to take advantage if they believed Britain was less capable than it had once been. All of this is to say that the world was watching, and while public opinion outside of the United States tended to side with the British position, there was also an expectation that the British would seek satisfaction in the dispute. If satisfaction was not received, though, and the United States was unwilling to return the commissioners it had seized, what then? Palmerston's administration was prepared to do what was necessary and withdraw its ambassador, Lord Lyons, from Washington, but this reaction was also speculated upon by the British press. On the 2nd of December, the Morning Post, a newspaper closely linked to Palmerston and generally friendly towards him, claimed the following. Dispatches will at once be forwarded to Lord Lyons, instructing him to claim the persons of the gentlemen taken from under the protection of the English flag, together with an apology for the outrage committed by the captain of the San Jacinto. If these demands are not at once complied with, Lord Lyons will break off diplomatic relations with the cabinet of Washington and return to this country. The time has now passed away for legal argumentation, which has been exhausted by the subtlety of the press, and which for practical purposes has been brought to a close by the unanimous opinion of the law officers of the Crown, that we suffered a gross national affront in the manner in which the act of Captain Wilkes was perpetrated, was patent even before the piratical nature of the act had been legally established, and it would, apart from its illegality, have been incompatible with the maintenance of friendly relations which before existed with the Federal Government of America. Yet some papers argue that there was even more at stake than this. It wasn't simply that Britain's national honour had been tainted or that her flag had been insulted or that international law had been broken. It was the danger that if Britain simply shrugged her shoulders, such an outcry could happen again. Wilkes's behaviour on board the San Jacinto was wrong, but if that wrong was accepted, it could become the norm and civilised trade and the protection of neutrals would become a thing of the past as the examiner noted. On being refused the prisoners whom he sought, the proper course for Captain Wilkes would have been to have taken the Trent into the nearest port as his prize, and to have demanded an adjudication in his favour by a competent tribunal. Instead of so doing, he thought fit to usurp the functions of international judicature, and attempted to cut short the discussions of nice questions of international jurisprudence, by the wave of his lieutenant's hand and the flash of his seaman's cutlasses. No civilised government can be supposed capable of defending corsair practices like this. Were it tolerated for an hour, there would be an end to peace and freedom of the seas. Could Britain ruin international relations and customs for everyone if it failed to do the right thing now? Weakness and vacillation now could set a new low-bar standard and it was therefore essential that Britons showed courage and felt reassured that they were indeed on the right side of the quarrel. Interestingly, much was made of the fact that these commissioners were guests of the British as they travelled on the British vessel. If Americans had invaded British territory, seized Confederate agents from British land, and then returned home, the outrage would have been similar. The fact that it happened at sea, Britain's realm and the place where her power was so manifest, only made the insult seem worse. This was explored on the 2nd of December by The Economist. 
The honour of England is tarnished by the ill-treatment of our guests. The security of our commerce is impaired by the violation of our vessel. Our duty is clear. We must demand moderately but firmly apology for the insult and reparation for the injured. We must require that the gentlemen who have been seized should be at once set at liberty and that regret should be expressed for the dishonour of our national flag and for the violation of the sacred right of asylum. And we must intimate that if they refuse, we have no alternative save war. The calamity is great, but the obligation is greater. With such emotional talk about flags, honour, rights, respect and duty, did the question of whether the American behaviour was lawful matter all that much? We have seen some papers express horror that the whole affair would be dragged into legal wrangling and the bigger picture of national honour would be lost in the shuffle. International law, after all, remains somewhat ill-defined even today. In the mid-19th century, the question of what was lawful in the case of neutral behaviour was largely established on the traditions which had come before. Americans might feel some bitterness over British policy since 40 years before Britain's strict insistence upon its naval rights, resulting in extremes like impressment, forced Washington then to make war. But, and this is another point which emerges from the whole crisis, the United States was in a tricky legal position so long as the language it used surrounding the Civil War remained so strict. According to Washington, and according to Lincoln, Seward, and any other senior political figure, the Confederacy was not a belligerent, it was a rebel. A rebel was not entitled to belligerent status, or the rights which went with it. This was different, in other words, to the war between Britain and the United States in 1812, because those two belligerents had been sovereign powers. It was very difficult for Washington to remain consistent as long as it maintained this stance. To begin with, the Confederacy's belligerent status had already been essentially recognised by the Europeans as soon as those Europeans declared neutrality. To declare neutrality, a state has to declare their intention not to intervene in the war then ongoing between two belligerent powers. And this placed those two powers, in the case of the United States and the Confederacy, on the same legal playing field in a technical sense, which of course Washington did not like. Outright recognition of the Confederacy as a nation was also possible. You might recall France had already threatened it and offered to recognise the Confederacy alongside Britain, but Palmerston had hesitated back in London. The furthest the Prime Minister would go was to make that declaration of neutrality. Britain didn't recognise the South as an independent nation, at least not legally, but there was no guarantee they would not do so in the future, and this recognition would be inevitable in the event that Britain and the United States came to blows. But why does all this matter? It mattered a great deal because even while Washington refused to recognise the Confederacy as a legal belligerent, and even while it insisted on casting the war as a rebellion, American officials still wanted to interpret international law as though they were in fact fighting a belligerent. They wanted, in short, to have their legal cake and eat it. The United States was entitled to seize those commissioners, the official line went, because those commissioners were the war contraband of a belligerent nation, and according to the rulings laid down in the 1856 Treaty of Paris, the United States was entitled to seize war contraband, even if it resided on neutral vessels. All this may seem like splitting hairs, but for the sake of our narrative here, it is important that the legal positions of the two sides are set out, since the legal aspect of things formed a major plank of the debate in the public and private sphere. More legal wrangling followed. This revolved around the idea of contraband, and what constituted contraband. 
did an individual represent contraband? What if that individual was guaranteed to act against the military interests of the nation that arrested them? Well, even then, the issue was a tricky one. Did the two commissioners, Mason and Slidell, intend to undermine the military capabilities of the United States? They almost certainly did, but a person had never been classed as war contraband before. In addition, loopholes could be found if one looked deeper. Although the defeat of the United States was surely the end goal of Mason and Slidell, they intended to go to Europe primarily to represent Confederate interests to Britain and to France. This included economic interests and the seeking of foreign loans, material interests in the solicitation of trade deals, and political interests in seeking diplomatic recognition of the Confederacy. Yes, one could argue that these interests could all be traced back to the Confederacy's war against the United States, and the successful fulfilment of any one of these interests would have undermined the United States' military position, but still, the definitions were sketchy enough, and international law was young enough that the complexities further undermined the American claim that the commissioners were war contraband, equivalent to powder, arms or cannon. And if that wasn't bad enough, the way that Wilkes had behaved when boarding the Trent also counted against the American case. It wasn't customary for foreign agents to be seized from neutral ships, and then for that neutral ship to be let go on its way. What was customary was for the neutral vessel to be halted, towed back to port, and then for the contents of that vessel to be determined by the jurisdiction of a prize court. Wilkes had not done this, and though he had not behaved as disrespectfully or provocatively as some Britons liked to imagine, waving his cutlass around and demanding the humiliation of the empire, he still had not acted according to established norms and expectations. This is all to say that Britain's legal position, as much as its outrage over Wilkes's act, was multi-layered. National honour may have been the essence of all patriotic Britons, it may have been the fire which roused all proud British citizens to great flurries of passion, but it was not in itself the only outrage that had occurred. In seizing the commissioners and denying the crew of the Trent their proper judgment before a prize court, the United States had ignored the customs of international law. It had applied an exaggerated and unprecedented interpretation of contraband, and it had engaged selectively with the questions of belligerent rights where it suited them. These issues were not fully understood by all, but there was certainly a sense that Britain was on the right side of the law, and that, with this confidence, papers were able to emphasise the law's primacy in matters such as these, as the Saturday Review declared on the 1st of December. There has been most serious determination to uphold our rights and the keenest jealousy of our national honour, but there has been an honest wish to abide patiently by the rules of law and to accept the law from those whose official duty it is to advise the government at such a crisis. We only want to know what England ought to do in justice to others and to herself. If she has to put up with an act offensive in manner but legal in character, she will know how to bear the burden with dignity. If she has a claim to make, the refusal of which may lead to war, she is sure to fight hard and stoutly enough when the time for fighting comes. The following day on the 2nd of December, the Spectator presented its take on events, which read very similarly to the papers quoted above. International law, the Spectator said, must be obeyed as well as respected, and the government referred the affairs to the law officers of the Crown, with a resolve, whatever the nation's sense of humiliation, to abide by their opinion as fully as in a private dispute. Legally, though, the Spectator said, the United States had no leg to stand on. 
They, the Southern Commissioners, were not combatants, had no official position which the federal government had ever recognised, and, if claimed as rebels, could not be given up without the violation of a great principle and the loss of national honour. We need not say with what keen regret we feel driven to this conclusion, for it involves steps tending directly to aid the worst cause Englishmen were ever asked to support. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And that last sentence is particularly interesting in this case notwithstanding legal arguments in Britain's favour or the sense of outraged honour which was keenly felt, some hesitation on the part of Britain's was to be expected, since any conflict with the United States would, directly or indirectly, aid the Confederacy. As the spectator continued, Britain's did not want to aid the Confederacy, but when something as critical to a nation's survival as national honour was involved, there could be no room for retreat, whatever the consequences. The spectator continued, That we in such a contest should be on the side of the wrong is a bitter humiliation, but our duty is nonetheless clear. Almost any other insult might have been borne for the sake of the cause at stake. We have already passed over in silence the imprisonment of British miners, the stoppage of British vessels, a hundred official speeches which, except in America, would have furnished just cause for complaint. A formal apology, an expression of strong regret, even a reference to some impartial arbitration, as to the international law, might satisfy the national honour, and certainly would induce us to pass over an act, the punishment of which will involve the triumph of evil men. But there is something at stake as sacred as the national honour, and that is our right to receive all men not accused of civil crime, and it can be satisfied only by the release of the commissioners, with whom in themselves we sympathise, as much as we would with brigands. 
This reference to legalities was all well and good, but it was bound to go over the heads of many contemporaries who either did not understand or did not care to understand the nuances involved. Since the legal customs had Britain in the stronger position, vis-à-vis the United States, one could argue that it didn't matter all that much whether the masses engaged with international law or not. Indeed, for the Preston Chronicler and Lancashire Advertiser, the case it stated on the 4th of December 1861 was a simple one. The United States, it was claimed, would use the arguments used by the British 40 years before in claiming their right to seize neutral property on the seas. Although the advertiser conceded that this may well all be very ingenious and very sound, it asked the following question to ground the crisis in terms that its readers could easily understood. In private life, what do we think of a man who, when another spits in his face, rushes in the first instance to the law books to search for precedence and justification? He may be a very prudent man, but certainly, as a general rule, he is not likely to be popular. That is pretty much our national position at the moment. It was necessary to meet the American challenge through the means befitting a nation of the first rank, which Britain was, with its military power, the same power that had established Britain's reputation at land and at sea. The need to respond forcibly was imperative, the advertiser continued, because The Yankees have spit in our faces, and we are plunged up to the neck in legal disquotations and precedents and authorities to ascertain whether they had the law on their sides. The public, that is to say, its lower strata, where the real manliness and pluck of a nation are always to be found, are taking the matter in a very different temper. To demonstrate the depth of anti-American feeling in Britain, the Lancashire advertiser went on to detail a new play in London's Adelphi Theatre. The performance itself wasn't important, but posters that advertised this play happened to be emblazoned with the American flag, and this served as a focal point of public discontent, as the advertiser continued. We are creditably informed that crowds of men and boys stop opposite these posters as they pass to and from their work, and bespatter them with mud in the most energetic and effectual manner. This shows perfectly what the feeling is. The people feel that they have been insulted, and are indignant. The journalists and their higher classes run to their law books, and search for precedents and palliations. After having learned of the disrespect shown to the British flag, Britons were liable in their turn to hurl abuse and other items at the American Stars and Stripes. With the public mood on its side, the advertiser concluded by issuing a resounding call to arms. Without at all deprecating the horrors of war or the desirability of making peace, we have come to the conclusion that the time has come when the ministers must uphold the national honour with a high hand. There never was a better case. There never was a fairer opportunity. The Yankees have been insulting us for years, the San Juan affair being only an affair of yesterday, and it was quite as bad as the capture of the commissioners. That same day, the Manchester Guardian, predecessor of the modern Guardian newspaper, and possessing very similar sympathies, reported on a speech given by the Prime Minister of Nova Scotia. By this point in its history, the Dominion of Canada had yet to be fully formed, and it was instead constituted of several smaller territories, until the fusion of these people together later on. For Joseph Howe, the Prime Minister of Nova Scotia, the outrage was plain and simple. Indeed, Joseph Howe left no room for doubt about where he stood. 
Since the day when an old English sea captain, who had been seized by a Spanish man-of-war, tied upon to the chains on board his ship, and his ears cut off, since the day when that mutilated Englishman carried his ears to the bar of the House of Commons and provoked a war, he knew of no outrage in all our history equal to that perpetrated upon this country within the last month. This was in reference to the so-called War of Jenkins' Ear, the American theatre of the War of the Austrian Succession, which lasted from 1739 to 48. The Trent Affair being an even worse affront than that inflicted by Spain in 1739, as Howe claimed, there could surely be no other course unless the metaphorical ear was repaired and Lincoln's administration offered full redress. As Howe continued, What did he think of the chances of peace? The insult was so gross that it was just possible that public men in America might yield to the pressures of circumstances and retire before the storm. But from what he knew of the country he had his fears. What then? With a clear conscience and an eye turned towards the Almighty, they might accept the gauge of battle flung down. This was no light thing for the colonists in America, who, with a frontier of 1,500 miles along the borders of the United States, would have to bear the first brunt of the battle. But they would fight to a man for the British flag. Howe was right to feel apprehensive about the prospect of defending the Canadian border. Palmerston's own ministers were similarly unnerved about the disaster which might follow if the war with the United States did not go well. Yet, while the fear of an American war of bitterness or conquest in Canada could not be ignored, the general sentiments of the British public seemed to amount to a belief that a wrong had been committed, it had to be apologised for, that a war with the Union was undesirable and would aid the morally bankrupt Confederacy, and that it would be wise of the Union to offer redress now to prevent the calamity of an Anglo-American war from taking place. An 8th of December edition of the Saturday Review captured these views effectively. When America and Europe hereafter ask Mr. Seward for his boasted union, he will refer them to the fatal war with England. The choice of peace or war mainly rests with the government of Washington, but something may possibly depend upon English opinion, and it is desirable that the little influence which can be exerted on this side of the Atlantic should not be employed in envenoming the dispute. A war with the Federal Union will only be undertaken because it has been rendered unavoidable. No contest can be more repugnant to English feelings, and even material interests enormously preponderate in the favour of peace. The close alliance which must result from joint warfare against the North would be in many ways embarrassing to the English government, that is, the close alliance with the Confederacy. England, if she is forced into war, will enter on the struggle without passion as without hesitation, but the Confederates will simultaneously profit by the weakness of their enemies to exact vengeance for unpardonable wrongs. Even the blatant journalists of New York will perhaps discover, when it is too late, that the previous forbearance of England was not suggested by the fear of the irresistible strength of the North, and that the war has been commenced not from a desire to profit from the weakness of the Union, but in calm and unavoidable compliance with the laws of duty and honour. That same day, the economist proposed that there were three chances, feeble ones unquestionably, it said, to avoid an Anglo-American war. First, merchant and banking interests in the United States may get thoroughly frightened at the utter ruin which a rupture with England would entail upon them, and would make the best use of the secret power they are said to have over the American cabinet. 
The second chance for avoiding war was those enthusiastic patriots who were determined to see the South reunited with the North and who would act on their convictions that a war with England would be at once ruinous and irretrievably fatal to their hopes. The Economist anticipated that in the event of an Anglo-American war, the first step of England would naturally be to recognise the Southern Confederacy and the second to terminate the Northern Blockade. These things once effected, the independence of these seceding states becomes a fait accompli which nothing could undo. It was because those Northern Patriots preferred the recovery of their own grandeur to the humiliation of their rival that they may be willing to apologise to us now, reserving vengeance and compensation for a future day, rather than give up at once the sacred purpose of the Civil War. And The Economist went still further, judging that if the Americans refused Britain's demands for compensation, it will be a sure sign that they have at least abandoned all hope of a successful issue of the Civil War. If they offer us reparation, it is because they still cling to and hope for the restoration of the Union. Nor was this judgment far off the mark, as Lincoln and Seward would prove. The Economist continued by offering its view of what the third option for avoiding an Anglo-American war would be, and this was somewhat sneakier. They will see that they cannot fight Great Britain and the Southern Confederacy at once, and so may endeavour to put us off by diplomatic stratagem. Essentially, the Union would play dumb and would argue stringently for its interpretation of international law, followed shortly thereafter by a shrugging of shoulders and a suggestion that if it mattered so much to the British, of course Washington would have no objection to express regret for any transgression as to form of which Commodore Wilkes may have been guilty, and to refer the dispute to an arbitration court of some kind. We can read between the lines here of what The Economist was saying and note that there was no outcome acceptable to the British press other than that which granted satisfaction to Britain and contrition in some form from the United States. The crisis wouldn't be allowed to simply lapse and fade into the background until sufficient time had passed for everyone to move on. A real and genuine solution was required, and the United States would have to show that it took British grievances seriously in the affair. Otherwise, the argument went, the Americans or some other power would simply attack British naval interests at sea once again. Much of the expectation for adequate satisfaction was sourced from Britain's favourable military position in the crisis. As the London Review recorded on the 8th of December, England will have the satisfaction of feeling that she has done nothing either to seek or precipitate this quarrel. If America refuses to do justice to us, she will do it with her eyes open and the consequences must be on her own head. If we regret, as we believe both the government and the people of England do most sincerely regret, the necessity which is forced upon us, it is not from any doubt or fears to the event. A war in which the advantage was so entirely and beyond all calculation on one side has never yet been recorded in the pages of history. The London Review then elaborated, explaining precisely what was in store for the United States in the event of a war with the greatest naval power on earth. From the moment that hostilities commence, the American flag must inevitably disappear from the face of the seas. Her whole naval force does not amount to a dozen effective steam vessels of war, and none of these are above the class of frigates. It is not an exaggeration to say that for every American ship of war, England can produce ten, and the superiority of calibre and armament would probably double this proportion in our favour. 
The only weak point in our possessions is being already strengthened. Several regiments are now under orders to sail for Canada and will probably embark in the course of the next week. There need, therefore, be no apprehensions for the safety of Canada, which, besides the assistance we shall send, has an admirable militia quite adequate for her immediate defence. From the vantage ground of a just cause, and with an overwhelming superiority of force, we may await with calmness and confidence a decision which cannot be long delayed. But Palmerston's government was apprehensive about the defence of Canada. Notwithstanding the militia and regulars which were en route, it was impossible to match the North's huge army, which grew in size with every season. To explain the Canadian position in Britain's defences and the wider plan for Britain's war with the Union, and a war plan did exist, it is worth taking some time to examine this war plan. But we're going to save that examination for the next episode. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode here today. And if you would like to hear about Britain's plans for war with the United States in late 1861, make sure you tune in to the next episode of this series. Otherwise, guys, I hope you're enjoying it, and I will see you all soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.